Before we start, just a heads up that there is brief mention of suicide in this episode, right around minute 320 to 330 and again at 1430 to about 1440. You can skip ahead at those times and miss any reference. Here's the episode. Welcome to Outspoken Voices, a podcast by and for LGBTQ plus families anywhere on their journey. I'm your host, Emily McGranahan. I'm the Director of Family Engagement with Family Equality. November is National Adoption Month. Joining me today to share their personal journeys and to really have this episode move deeper into conversation about adoption and foster care are two adopted queer spawn, Weston and Kaylee. Kaylee is a proud second-generation genderqueer Southern queer spawn. Raised in Charlotte, North Carolina, Kaylee was brought to America by two loving mothers when they were six months old from Lima, Peru. Kaylee has a large amount of pride in their queer spawn identity and has been organizing in their local communities since 2009 with an emphasis on support for youth in queer families. With that focus, they are currently the director of Collage Programming, a national program that unites and supports youth and adults in LGBTQ plus families in the United States. Weston entered the foster care system at age 14 and after several placements found his forever family with his two dads and six siblings. In high school, Weston was a competitive cheerleader and was involved with the Youth Speak Out team, which works to raise awareness of the experiences of foster youth and the challenges they face. He was also a human rights campaign youth ambassador. Weston enjoys spending time with his friends and family and writing poetry. Well, welcome Kaylee and Weston. Thank you so much, Emily. It's great to be here. I'm going to get us started with the question that starts off every episode. Uh, Who is in your family and how was it formed? So Kaylee, would you start us off? I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. It's interesting. I always think of my family story in in multiple parts. So I think the first part is definitely how my two moms met. (laughs) So I have two lesbian moms. Um, Their names are Kathy and Joanne. They're wonderful they met in a very, very stereotypical uh, lesbian way. They met on the softball field. And a little while after that, I was adopted. So as like you mentioned, Emily, I was adopted from Lima, Peru when I was six months old. Um, and they started their family that way. And then three years later, they adopted my little brother at eight months old from Guatemala. So that's, that's the meat of my story. And now I've continued that. So recently I've um, married my longtime best friend and partner, Sam, and and she's actually another person who has a bisexual mom. So she's in the community. And just to define it, in case folks don't know, queer spawn and closure, I'll use those synonymously. That just means it's a term, an identity term that some people have um, and they've taken on to identify their specific placement in the family. So it's a term that means someone who has one or more LGBTQ plus parent or caregiver has had or had. Um, so she is also a collager. So currently, you know, I have three queer parents technically in my life. Um, and then a, a slew of queer aunties who also love and care for me. And they've cared for me and my family, especially after the recent passing of my brother, um, Joseph. So coming up on November 5th will be four years um, since he died by suicide. So he's still a part of my family. We, we honor and cherish him. Um, but my family has many different parts, many different layers. Thanks. And Weston, who is in your family and how was it formed? 
Yeah, so my family consists of my two dads and my six as I was in a residential facility um, in a very real community and trying to find a affirming placement. And so he found one with his, it was um, his um, two best friends, like one of his, like it was someone he knew, you know, his friends and stuff. And I was supposed to be placed with them. And they were in the process of moving. So I was with my, I was with like my dad's now. I was supposed to just only be with them for like two weeks or so in the transition of moving in with um, the lesbian couple that I was um, supposed to be placed with. And then I went for a weekend visit and um, realized that this is where I really was meant to be. I mean, I fit in so well. I never like really like through my journey and being in foster care, I never found such a connection with a family where I felt like I was biologically their own. And so um, it's very interesting that my dad uh, worked for an agency that kind of led me to be his son. That's great. I love that. And what are, this is a question for both of you that I also love to ask folks, um, just what are some of your favorite things to do as a family? I love that question, Emily. Um, I think for our family, we have some pretty unique family traditions. So one of our traditions is for people's birthday, we make muffins as the first thing. And um, the tradition is that you're supposed to wake up to muffins in a candle. Um, and then another family tradition we have is um, every Tuesday, thankfully I live close to my family, every Tuesday we have Taco Tuesday. So we meet up at a restaurant and we all have dinner together, but it's consistent of my family. And then also like my queer aunties, which is wonderful. So we all meet once a week just check in and see how everyone's doing and, and update each other. Another favorite family tradition um, that's happened about six years ago is uh, family week. So that is actually where I met my current spouse. And that is, I mean, family week hands down is, in case you don't know, it's the largest annual gathering of LGBTQ plus families in the world. It is a wonderful week and I plan my whole year around it. Um, so thankfully, I work for Collage, who now it really is my job to do that. But before that, it was a tradition that we did every single year. My parents were actually able to join me one year, which was wonderful. But I joined as an adult, and it's just been life-changing of a gathering of other adult and also youth queer spawn. They get together. It's about 2,000 of us. So it's just phenomenal. So Weston, what are your favorite, some of your favorite things to do as a family? Yes. So it was really cool though, like when I was placed with my dads and they read my file and one of my dads was a cheerleader at Pitt State where I also go and I also used to cheer here as well. And so we really connected through cheerleading. I don't know if I would say I necessarily led my dad back into the cheer world since he was out of it for so long, but with me expressing such a passion for cheerleading, he decided to go back in the cheer industry and actually opened up his own gym. And so like I have six siblings and we all we're also on cheer, different teams on different age levels. And so I think cheerleading has really united our family with my dad's owning a cheerleading gym and kind of just, that's like my dad's, um, that's like his craft and something he's so passionate about. And it's really cool that we are all able to have the same skills and the same mindset to being able to be a part of that passion that he has had for himself. That's a very talented family. That's really cool. So you you both have two very different adoption stories. Is there more about international private adoption or foster care and adoption that you'd like to share? Just big open question. Yes. So for me being um, identifying as LGBTQ within the foster care placements lack the knowledge or the understanding on how to care for or to aid in any kind of resources or any kind of like understanding for someone who identified as LGBTQ and as well as someone who was a person of color. And so I kind of um, had a hard time kind of navigating like who 
to reach out to in ways to like get the sense of like resources and to like understand myself as I was kind of going through this journey of discovering who I was, as well as just not being able to find affirming or accepting placements and identifying as LGBTQ with just the whole me like being gay, or maybe I would, um, I think at times they fear that I would change the different children in the home to become gay or a sense of this whole like predatorial aspect as well. And so they really feared me, I believe. And although like I was also black as well or biracial, identify as biracial. So I think that was another kind of factor that kind of dampered in me finding a placement. Wow. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, Emily, you are very correct. We have very different adoption stories. And I think for me, you know, I was adopted as a baby internationally. One thing, um, Tony Hines is doing some great work uh, with this. And, and one thing in a recent podcast that he helped moderate that I really, really love and, and helped expand my understanding and in and, and talking to other adoptees too, is just the idea that ethical adoption is an option. Um, so thinking about when folks are prospective parents looking for an adoption agency, really finding one that, I mean, number one, supports them as a queer couple or a queer family or a queer person. I know that was a struggle for my family even trying to adopt me they were denied in the, the home study um, because my mom had a quote unquote roommate and they could see right through that. And so she really had to fight to work with an adoption agency to, to even adopt in the first place. But finding an adoption agency that also really supports the birth family and the birth mother as much as the adoptive family. I think in that recent podcast episode with Tony, that was just wonderful and, and great to hear because I've heard a lot of stories from other adoptees, especially international adoptees where there's little to no information about the birth family, the birth mother. Um, and there's questionable ethics with that of, did they actually know what was happening? Did they know the outcome? Did they choose that as an option? So even having a choice in the matter, I think is really important as opposed to having an agency that just caters to the adoptive, the protective adoptive parent or parents. Um, so I think that is something that is really, really important to me as I move forward in these adoption circles and in the advocacy work. Yeah, thank you both. Well, Kaylee, you actually alluded to this, uh, so maybe you could expand a little bit more. But and and you did talk about Family Week as you know one space uh, that you access with LGBTQ families. But have you both engaged in spaces for other adopted people or adopted queer spawn in particular? Uh, and why are those spaces important to you? That has been one of the most life changing things for me. I think. Personally, when I first went to Family Week, I was an adult. I was just starting college, but really I was able to go into a space where there were other adult adoptees that were internationally adopted and were growing up in white queer families, which is so, you know, finite and so unique. And that was just wonderful. And that space completely changed my life. And so one thing at Family Week and, and Collage, the organization, one thing that we do is we create what we call lunch chats, or now we call them afternoon discussions. And it really is just a group, a safe space to talk about our experiences. And one of the ones that I love and get so much love and, and pour so much love into is the one for adoptees. There's also another one that I love, which is the queer spot of color. But the adoptee lunch chat has really just changed my world. And, and that is a great, great place that I've found support and really can you know, bring my whole self, but not only that, but I get to be the leader that I always wished I had when I was younger. I never had an older 
queer spawn of color that I could look up to, especially a genderqueer one and say, wow, like that person made it. That person is in the world as an adult. That's somebody that's doing great things. Like I want to be like that. I never had that. And I just want to be able to be a positive influence in the younger generations that are still navigating their own identity and their own adoption story in, in history. I was a part of an organization called Youth Speak Out. It was where it was a um, group of uh, foster care youth who were sharing their story. So it kind of really started to me as a sense of just like a support group where we shared our stories, our experiences, and really thought about how we wanted to change and frame the foster care system based on what we went through. There's a couple of people in this organization that were adopted and other ones and other individuals were really looking for their forever family. And I really believe that this organization was so important it was so empowering just to be able to get a group of different people into the same space and being able to share their stories and kind of feeding off of how we can change the course of such a broken foster care system. Um, so I really think that that was something that I really was able to engage in and being able to be a part of something where I was able to kind of highlight my experiences and being able to really change something that was very important to me. So, uh, Kaylee, you had mentioned Tony Hines, and actually, I have a question just related to to Tony and Tony's pure excellence. Um, but my, but Tony Hines, who is an author, an activist, and a queer spawn, recently published this really excellent article. This just just this past September called uh, "Why We Shouldn't Call Adoptees Quote Lucky," and I just want to read a, a one quick quote from that because it really I think is a very powerful one. And so he writes. When we insinuate that an adoptee is lucky, we often invalidate the unique challenges they continue to experience after being adopted and paint adoptive parents as saviors when in fact they are simply parents, good and bad and wonderful and flawed as any parent can be. When we point to adoptees as lucky, we may also fail to look for ways to change systems that contribute to the trauma-inducing situations too many children and families experience. I just wanted to read that because I really want to just open up space for your your thoughts, your reactions. Does that resonate with you? Yeah. So for me, I both, in a way, I agree and I disagree with this. I believe that every individual who enters a foster care system deserves a loving, accepting, affirming um, family where they can just feel loved, be loved, and just live their authentic life and being able to just be themselves. And on the flip side, I really believe that for me, through my experiences and with my two dads and my family, that ultimately I believe that my two dads really saved my life because before I was placed with them, I was in a residential facility and ultimately I was on the cuffs of wanting to ultimately end my life and being a part and like kind of just thinking about like I didn't want to be living in a in a world or living a life that I felt that was so meaningless with not having a sense of any direction, no loving family, kind of feeling alone in a in an emergency shelter. So the fact that I was adopted by my two dads really ultimately saved my life in a way that they were able to give me things that I knew I would not have been given. And so for that, I'm more than lucky, more than appreciative. And ultimately they've given me a different aspect on what it's like to be a gay, biracial, gender fluid person and ultimately a white America. I love that, Weston. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think for me, I, it, that um, the article by Tony couldn't have come out at a, a more perfect time. Actually, a few days before that article came out, um, I was recently at my parents' church and 
I I'd grown up there and people, you know, and during that back in the day, they could go to the airport and the actual terminal and, and stand at the gate and, you know, welcome people as they came back. And so a lot of those folks were there when I came to America and one of those folks said, oh, it's so good to see you. And, and for some reason felt the need to talk about, you know, that, you know, I've come so far and, and how neglected I was when they first saw me and how lucky I am, you know, to have my family. And, and that kind of just struck me. And then I, it sat with me for a bit. And then that article from Tony came out and I was like, wow, like what, what perfect timing. Cause even in my own life, I've experienced this and heard people say, oh, how lucky you are. And that, that lucky narrative. And I just had to stop and say, wow, you know, you really, there are so many nuances to my experience and so many nuances to my family. Yes. Yes. I love my family. And yes, we're like every other family, you know, we have our struggles, especially with losing Joseph. And, you know, luckily for us, that brought us closer together. And and luckily I have some great parents, but also it hasn't always been easy. You know, being a person of color in a white family has definitely had its own trials and tribulations. And I'm thankful for my family, yes, but also there are so many nuances and so many intersections that I had to find on my own for my own identity that my moms weren't able to support with. And they're still learning and they're still changing and I, I'm so thankful for them. But I think in this thought of, you know, someone saying how lucky you are, I I really appreciated my training through collage and through other folks of just saying, you know, wow, this person doesn't really have that much of a clue of like what all the nuances of my life but you know what this could be a moment when I could help that person understand more or I don't have to I don't always have to share my story and I think that choice is so important for for young folks and for adoptees to to think about and to have like to know that we have agency to understand when and where we tell our story and how we tell our story that we don't have to always tell our story to people even if they make false assumptions of us or true assumptions of us really that choice and agency is, is up to us. Um, and I'm thankful that collage really helped me understand that I do have a choice to share my story. And so when I hear that, you know, oh, you're so lucky. I also hear in that so much misunderstandings that people have. And I'm proud that I have a choice to, to really combat that if I have the energy or not, just leave it alone and say, hmm, okay, thank you. It's great to see you too, which is what I did in that moment. And I didn't have to really go into it with this person I could really just share you know thank you I hear you know in between all of this I'm, I'm searching for the gold nuggets in that and the gold nugget is that you're glad to see me today and I can I can pull from that and not have to to share what the nuances of my life and how hard it has also been being an adoptee so I'm thankful for the choice and I'm, I'm thankful for folks that care and I I'm very 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 appreciative of Tony and Tony's work and shifting that narrative away from thinking adoptees are lucky always and should be grateful. Yeah. One thing that really stuck out to me in the, in the quote that Tony wrote was as he writes, you know, by, by using that sort of terminology, we paint adoptive parents as saviors when in fact they're simply parents, good and bad and wonderful and flawed as any parent can be within queer response spaces. Now increasingly outside having open conversations about this, this idea of a poster child syndrome, this feeling that L- people with LGBTQ parents must be representing uh, all of our families and all L- LGBTQ people. And so there is that poster child, you want to be painting your family as perfect and wonderful all the time. But I would really love your thoughts on how some of that poster child 
pressure was a unique experience for you, uh, as you've both shared as adoptees with uh, in interracial families, you know, as, as people of color and as genderqueer and gender non-binary identifying people as well. Kaylee, would you maybe start us? Because I know this is something that is, it's a familiar term for you. Poster child is is part of our, you know, living language for our community. Um, the Queer Spend Resource Project has done a great job of outlining some of those pieces and, and definitions. So if folks are interested in learning more, feel free to check out the Queer Spend Resource Project. But yes, poster child, the poster child syndrome, I can't tell tell you how many interviews or workshops or even TV shows that I've been a part of where people are not a part of the community, even outside of collage and, and ask me, you know, can you speak for, you know, all adoptees or all youth and LGBTQ families? Like, what is the experience as if there's only one experience? And that has been something that I have done a lot of work to to make sure that other youth know that they have a choice in sharing our story or not sharing our story, how and when we should share our story. Um, But also recognizing that, you know, as a community, we're intersectional. You know, our identities are multi-layered, our families and stories are multi-layered, and our families aren't always perfect. You know, we don't always have to conform to this cookie cutter story or idea of who we are. Although it can be very scary and very, you know, real for some folks that you have to do that. But the idea that you have a choice of when and where you do that is important. I know growing up for me, there was always this concern in the back of my mind. You know, my my parents weren't legally married or legally together. They had to jump through some hoops to make sure, you know, in case one of my parents, uh, my primary caregiver, in case something happened to her, making sure that my other mom would have legal custody of me. And I remember as a child having that at the forefront of my mind, the reality that, you know, that is something at times when I had to think about that and I had to share my story that we're perfect. Oh yes, my family is wonderful because of that fear of being separated from them or the fear of being taken away from my moms. That is something that, you know, I had to navigate and I had to code switch with my brother too. Like when we were out and about, we'd say, sometimes we'd say mom instead of moms, but we would know that we were thinking, saying, thinking and saying moms at the same time. So we would use coded language with each other to talk about our family to try to protect each other. But there was this expectation, especially because I was the only person at my school that I know of that had, you know, a queer parent at times, especially in elementary school. There were many places where I was the only one. And so when I had to to speak about my family, it definitely felt like I had to, you know, stand up and and do like a princess wave and say, yes, my family is wonderful and we're perfect and we're just like you. And I think the beauty of shifting that narrative is saying our families are wonderful and complicated and layered and multidimensional. And just like other families, you know, we have our things, but what makes us wonderful is our difference and our difference actually is our strength. Um, and people should be celebrated for their differences, not in spite of, or because of. Yes. Yeah, so I would like to add that at the end of the day, understanding that no one can control your identity and being able to hone in that your truth is your truth. And at the end of the day, no one's perfect, but we're living our lives the best that we can as, as authentically as we can as well. Totally. So you've, you've each talked a little bit about this, but you know, statistically we know that many LGBTQ plus people are fostering and adopting youth of a different ethnicity than themselves. How have you navigated your identity, found community, and even, 
you know, discussed identity as a family. Weston, I'd love to hear from you too about this um, because I think it relates to the poster child as well. But I think for me, there are like two facets of this. It's like, again, with our intersectional identities, for me, it's been not only just discovering and, and celebrating and understanding my own race and ethnicity, but also my own sexuality. Um, that's been something in my own gender identity as well. It's it's a lot of them are layered and intertwined in, in my discovery of it. And I, for me specifically around race with my family, you know, my moms are white. It really wasn't until collage that I was able to meet other queer spawn of color with white, you know, lesbian moms or even just white parents and really understanding and, and coming to terms with our own racial identity and our own cultures and, and connecting and celebrating even our unique culture of being in that multiracial family. But I think, you know, there are many different experiences. You know, there's an experience of being a person of color in the United States. There's an experience of um, being a person of color in the U.S. with a queer parent. And then there's on top of that, you know, being a person of color in the United States with a white queer parents. Um, and thanks to collage and community, I was able to connect with more folks that have that experience. And I think discovering my identity is a lifelong process. And I'm thankful I have support from people who really get it, who are in that with me and walking that with me. Um, and I'd say the same thing for my own, like gender identity and, and sexual identity. It's, I think, something that is ever changing and ever growing. And my moms are doing a, a great job, really supportive. Um, they understand that they don't always get it <laughs> and that they're, they need to do their own work to understand and support me and, and the larger community. We've had discussions about this now that I'm an adult. And, you know, when the, I was growing up, they said we they thought that they only had the option of raising me in a queer community or raising me in a community of people of color. And they just didn't know that those communities could oversect and coexist. And a lot of those things just because of their own experience. And and they've really thought about that more. And we've had a lot of discussions about how things, you know, they are what they are. And, and I love my moms for who they are. And they understand that there are a lot of things that they don't get or they couldn't never have gotten. And we've really worked to to build more anti-racist pieces into our lives and into our work to support each other and our larger community. So for a very long time, I've really struggled with myself and loving the person I am and being able to embrace myself as authentically as I possibly could and kind of just how I wanted to present myself to the world. And so so being able, like being adopted by my two dads, one of my dads actually is biracial himself. And when I was first placed with him, I would say I mixed or we kind of talked about race a little bit. And he was one, he was a person that really helped me understand that being mixed wasn't necessarily the right terminology to use, but being able to talk about being biracial and understanding that I'm not just black and I'm not just white and I'm not just gay, that there's a difference we understand and being able to identify and being able to really hone in and embrace being a gay biracial man. Great. Yeah. Well, you know, November, we're, we're just starting off now National Adoption Month. So any final thoughts to wrap up the episode? Anything that you wanted to share that I didn't get to ask you about yet? I think one thing that I've uh, recently in a, a panel posed to the audience and, and to other queer spawn, especially adoptees, to help further push for change and advocacy is, you know, think about who right now in the media is represents youth and LGBTQ families or even adult children and LGBTQ plant plus families. And what do those folks look like and who is missing from that? Um, you know, we don't really have a lot of people to look up to. A lot of mentors in the media are, are larger. I know 
Zach Walls is out there doing some great work. We also have some other folks like Tony Hines, which I'm so thankful for. But I'd love to help elevate those stories and really, really help think about who are we making space for and who are or who's falling through the cracks. You know, a lot of times youth are spoken for or about I'm not always given the agency to share their own stories. So just thinking around, you know, especially with adoptees, let adoptees share and speak their own stories, but also, you know, look for more intersectional stories and more intersectional people exactly like you're doing, Emily. And thank you so much for allowing myself and Weston to share our stories, because I think there are so many wonderful stories to share and also important stories to listen to, not just, you know, always positive stories, but just the whole gamut, like listen to youth listen to adoptees and if there is ever a time when people are making decisions for us make sure that we're involved and that we're involved every step of the way and just you know take a step back and recognize that if you don't have that identity if you don't have that experience just take that pause and get feedback from the community Um, I think there are many different instances when I've seen a lot of adoptees spoken for and I'd love for that narrative to change Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Weston, any final thoughts, anything that you'd like to share? Yes, of course. I just really want to say, I feel like a lot of individuals in the foster care system are so scared to speak their truth in the fear of what's to come. And ultimately, we thrive off of the truth and we thrive off of these experiences to only be able to empower and educate and just being able to uplift everyone else. And I think that that's so important that people who do identify as LGBTQ or identify as being biracial or gender fluid, I feel like they're not as represented as they should be. And so that's what I really wanted to do is kind of share my voice and being able to speak out for individuals who feel like they're not always represented in in a space where they should be. Yeah, Weston, I completely agree. And thank you so much for sharing. And really, it it really is just an honor and such a great experience being on this podcast with you and and hearing your story as well. So yeah, speak up, speak out, and our differences are strength. Absolutely. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Kaylee. Thank you, Weston, for talking with me. And please visit our website at outspokenvoicespodcast.com to be getting some more great show notes. Um, Well, thank you both so much. Again, thank you for joining us today. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Outspoken Voices. It really helps others find the show. You can listen to Outspoken Voices on our website, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app. You can find Family Equality at familyequality.org and on Facebook and Instagram at Family Equality and on Twitter at Family underscore Equality. For questions, inquiries, or episode suggestions, contact us at outspokenvoices at familyequality.org. And remember that love, justice, and equality is what brings our families together.